Epilogue. It has been 40 years since Yongpeng Hao was handed the Certificate of Incorporation for GIC. How has GIC developed since? To what extent has it realized the vision, the mission, the ambition that inspired its creation? This epilogue updates the story of GIC from when it began as a tenant of a single floor of the MAS offices at the old SIA building. While the narrative is framed chronologically, it is not so much a historical register as a spotlight on the critical decisions that shaped how GIC progressed from a shell of a company to what it is now, a vibrant, distinctive global investment management company critical to Singapore's financial security. Part 1. Setting the Foundations GIC's inaugural decade was a heady mix of financial market crises and euphoria. The financial market stresses would have unnerved the most seasoned of investors. American interest rates in the high teens, a deep recession in the United States, a sovereign debt crisis, and a Black Monday when global stock markets tumbled by as much as 60%. Yet, the decade also ushered in an era of disinflation, falling interest rates, and extended bull runs in global stocks and bonds. The board played a critical role during GIC's fledgling years. It was a steadying influence on policy direction without interfering in GIC's individual investment decisions while its guidance would shape GIC's development. It was a board with an unrivaled heft. Of the nine inaugural directors, two were the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, serving as Chairman and Deputy Chairman respectively, and another four were Cabinet Ministers. Lee and Dr Goh provided cardinal leadership. They worked in tandem to give the young company its moorings. From his GIC office, Dr. Goh guided management and staff on issues that needed the board's attention. He resumed his famous Monday morning prayers, the weekly briefings on financial markets, which became the training ground for young MAS and GIC officers. And, belying his stern exterior, his door was open to officers, both senior and junior. Lee Kuan Yew was no honorific chairman. He studied GIC board papers carefully and would scribble questions on the margins, questions which had to be answered in writing within the day. With his insistent vision and formidable intellect, Lee was a commanding presence. When he stepped in to chair a board meeting, GIC attendees automatically straightened their backs in preparation for their briefings. Lee's imprint on GIC's development would be indelible. From its first meeting, the board set its expectations on three foundational areas, expectations that have defined GIC since. First was GIC's ethos, its value system, the essence of which the board saw as integrity, meritocracy and boldness of vision. Both Dr. Goendi repeatedly stressed that these were the preconditions for GIC's success.
In short, GIC had to conduct itself in a manner beyond reproach, be distinguished for its professionalism and excellence, and have inspired leaders to take the company to greater heights. These values have become intrinsic to the GIC psyche. They guide how GIC recruits have developed its people and earmarks its future leaders. Second was GIC's investment orientation, that its focus would be long-term returns, not short-term gains. As Lee put it, quarterly results mattered little to him. Even annual returns need not be concerning unless GIC was acting stupidly. What mattered was whether GIC was investing in long-term assets. Critically, too, the board accepted that long-term investing called for a fortitude to ride out short-term losses. Preparedness to see through short-term losses has become one of GIC's core strengths. It gave management the confidence to weather the financial crises that were forthcoming. Third, and most fundamental, was GIC's significance to Singapore's financial security. At its root, GIC was created to ensure that Singapore was in control of how its reserves were managed and remained master of its destiny. That was why Dr. Goen Lee were insistent that the management of Singapore's reserves should not be entrusted to external fund managers. GIC would be the locus of where Singapore would develop expertise in reserve management. The ultimate purpose of GIC, as Lee put it, was to develop the essential capability of managing our reserves ourselves so that we could better control our long-term destiny. In turn, if GIC was to fulfill that high purpose, it had to be in charge of its own destiny. Two themes, therefore, set the context against which to assess GIC's evolution. One is GIC's role in enabling Singapore to be in better control of its destiny. Two is how GIC has stayed on top of the vast changes in the financial landscape to fulfill its mission and mandate. Cutting the umbilical cord GIC witnessed quantum organizational advances during J.Y. Pillay's tenure as managing director. A maestro in organizational development, he was the pioneering chairman of Singapore Airlines. Pillay worked his craft on GIC. Pillay weaned GIC from MAS. Up till then, GIC had piggybacked on MAS for office space, corporate services, management of its bonds portfolio, and economic analysis. Observers would not have been faulted for treating GIC as an appendage of MAS. In 1987, Pillay moved GIC to Raffles City Tower, a relocation he termed as cutting the umbilical cord from its putative corporate womb. It compelled GIC to become an autonomous, self-sufficient investment entity in double-quick time. The stage was set for it to forge its own identity. Pillay jump-started talent development in GIC. GIC's department heads were expatriates when he assumed office, a situation at odds with the vision that GIC's destiny should be in the hands of Singaporeans. Local managers were then groomed to take over leadership positions. When Pillay left GIC, 
a Singaporean top management team was in place. That team would lead GIC for up to the next two decades. Pillay also launched an intensive effort to recruit and train staff to meet GIC's expanding needs. So successful was this effort that GIC's hires soon became the favourite targets of headhunters. Pillay also put in place a structured investment process. The process itself was not original. It was standard practice among US institutional investors. However, he provided the leadership to prime the board to the new approach and to have the framework implemented. GIC now had an investment process that addressed systematically the whole range of decisions, from long-term asset allocation to the selection of individual securities. Another milestone during Pillay's tenure was the inception of a performance measurement system. With the aid of a British boutique firm, the system was built from scratch as it had to capture and measure the whole gamut of factors impacting GIC's investment performance. To boot, performance reports had to be timely. GIC's stakeholders were now able to know how well, or otherwise, every investment decision in GIC was doing. Towards the end of GIC's first decade, its officers endured a baptism of fire sparked by a Black Monday, when global stock markets fell by as much as 60%. The falls raised fears of an impending global recession. The outcome for GIC, however, was encouraging. Its diversified portfolio weathered the crisis, while the management team Pillay had put in place provided the leadership to calm nerves. Reporting to the board, Pillay commented that GIC's responses had been reassuring, noting that there was a good chance of GIC living up to its billing as genuine, unflappable investors with a durable view. It was also testament to GIC's growing maturity as an investment management company. Out of the comfort zone. In the 1990s, GIC ventured beyond its accustomed investment terrain. It became more globalized and an early institutional investor in Asian emerging markets. GIC also enhanced its private equity and real estate capabilities. These advances reflected a vision of the global changes to come and the boldness to adopt new ways to invest in unfamiliar investment situations. The changes engineered were against the backdrop of two developments that Lee had highlighted to GIC as having seismic implications. One was the profound changes in Europe, the dissolution of the USSR and the end of communist regimes in Eastern Europe the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany, and the formation of the European Union linked through a common currency, the euro. Lee counseled that GIC be positioned to exploit the consequent investment opportunities in the continent. Second was the unprecedented transformations in Asia, particularly in China. There, the reforms that Deng Xiaoping had introduced in the late 1970s and 1980s had taken root, and Dr. Goh and Li posited that China was poised to be one of the leading economies in the world. As we know now, their prognostications on China and the investment opportunities there 
was spot on. Elsewhere, India too was beginning to liberalise. Indeed, the region seems set to have higher growth rates compared to others. A strategic move into Asia and Europe would be a major shift for GIC. At the beginning of the 1990s, GIC's portfolio was distinctly Anglo-Saxon in orientation. All its private equity and real estate, and about two-thirds of its public market investments, were in the US and the United Kingdom. When it came to Asia, GIC's investments were mostly in Japan. GIC's low exposure to the other regional markets was mainly because, except for Hong Kong and Malaysia, they were illiquid, undeveloped, and lacked clear governance standards. GIC was restricted from investing in Singapore. But Lee intuited that GIC's predisposition to Anglo-Saxon markets also reflected a cultural and language affinity. Because of Singapore's history and cultural involvement with Britain and the US, he observed, Singapore would naturally operate by and large with the Anglo-Saxon economies. The language barrier and cultural bias made it difficult for GIC to be more than a marginal player in countries like Japan and Germany. At another board meeting, Lee noted that though GIC recognised that East Asia would enjoy high rates of growth, it should do more to position itself to react to this fundamental change. GIC should not let language and cultural bias skew its strategic thinking. GIC acted to remedy this cultural blind spot. It moved out of its comfort zone. Li Ektieng, who succeeded JY Pillay in 1989, oversaw GIC's investment shift towards Asia. He moved the management teams of real estate and special investments from Redwood City, which was close to San Francisco, back to Singapore. Their Asian teams were also expanded. GIC then embarked on a five-year plan to raise its Asian investments by allocating more of its funds to the region while still invested in Europe and the US. The new investments would be mainly in the equity markets, which were generally more liquid than the private markets. But GIC also planned to raise its real estate and special investments, particularly in countries like China, where the equities markets were small. Under Tae Kok Peng, who led the private markets group, special investments became a force in Asian private equity. The team's chief hurdle was the scarcity of attractive investment opportunities of size. Most of the promising unlisted Asian companies were family-owned, with the owner families generally loath to relinquish control. GIC, therefore, could not confine its efforts to recognisable names or sectors. It had to scour far and wide. In China, the early deals included investments in firms manufacturing batteries, toilet bowls and washing machines. GIC's practice of co-investing with partners, usually experts in the industries concerned, helped. Tay recruited Sik Ni Huat to run real estate. His team's first major Asian investment with the Japanese group was securing a prized Tokyo site and developing the Shiodome city centre on it. The team would eventually acquire properties in other major Asian cities. The Asian Financial Crisis, AFC, which erupted in 1997, 
did not shake the board's conviction in Asia. Lee saw the crisis as an opportunity for GIC to make good strategic purchases, not just a quick profit. He also suggested that the board co-opt industry leaders who had regional experience. Subsequently, Peter Xia, then CEO, Overseas Union Bank, OUB, Ang Kong Wa, then CEO, National Steel, and Ho Kwon Peng, Chairman, Wa Chang International Corporation in Banyan Tree Hotels and Resorts, were appointed to the board. A milestone for real estate and special investments was their corporatization as GIC Real Estate Private Limited, GICRE, and GIC Special Investments Private Limited, GICSI, respectively. By the late 1990s, both were competing against the best in their fields. Li Ek-Tieng had assessed that corporatization would then give them the organizational autonomy to develop the culture, business practices, and personnel policies. GIC's largest investment group, Public Markets, would be incorporated later. The advances in the 1990s laid the foundations for GIC to become what is now a Global Sovereign Wealth Fund, SWF, with multi-asset capabilities. The vision that GIC should invest beyond its traditional markets led to new sources of returns and diversification. GIC's early pivot into emerging Asia, especially China, gave it a head start in a fast-growing area. The corporatization of real estate and special investments catalyzed their development into investment entities of world-class standing. Not just a rainy day fund manager. In 2002, the board commissioned a review of GIC's investment policy and strategy. While the review led to important changes to GIC's investment framework, the more momentous outcome was a follow-up initiative led by MOF. The initiative resulted in a transformative view of the role of the reserves, changes to GIC's investment policy, and a constitutional amendment that cemented the link between the reserves and the welfare of Singaporeans. In approving the review, Lee noted that its purpose was not because the growth and achievement of GIC was in doubt. It was because there were fundamental changes going on and nobody could be sure what would happen in the future. Lee was referring to developments such as the bursting of the dot-com bubble, the 9-11 terrorist attacks in the US, the prospects then of the US invading Iraq, the prolonged stagnation of the Japanese economy, and the difficult structural changes that Europe was undergoing. It was necessary, he added, to find the right navigator with good maps in order to steer through the treacherous waters. A consulting firm, Cambridge Associates, was engaged. It was chosen chiefly because of its expertise on the investment policies and practices of large U.S. university endowments. The firm's director of research, Ian Kennedy, led the assignment. He was given a wide ambit, with access to board members, including Lee. Kennedy was asked to start from first principles, beginning with the very purpose of the assets managed by GIC. As it turned out, 
Kennedy's conclusion on this would be refined further by a more fundamental review later. Even so, his conclusion was deftly put, that the assets managed by GIC were long-term savings to provide for the future support of the Republic of Singapore and its citizens. GIC's financial objective could, therefore, be defined as preserving and enhancing the fund's inflation-adjusted purchasing power over the long term. Kennedy also recommended an asset allocation policy suitable for GIC's financial objectives, using U.S. university endowment funds as a reference. Lee, however, qualified the extent to which these funds could serve as a model for GIC. They, he pointed out, did not need to take into account what happened to the U.S. economy. GIC, however, had to take into account the potential calls on its funds if the Singapore economy suffered a serious downturn. As Lee saw it, GIC was more than a fund manager for Singapore. The reserves it was managing were Singapore's lifeline in a crisis. Not all of Kennedy's asset allocation recommendations would be accepted. However, an asset class he recommended has remained a staple for GIC. This was inflation-indexed bonds. These are sovereign bonds whose principal and coupon payments are adjusted for inflation, thus protecting the investor from inflation risk. As such, they directly address GIC's mission. The drawback, though, was the limited supply of such bonds. The board also accepted Kennedy's recommendation for a board-level investment committee. It would enable board oversight over GIC's investment policy to be more exhaustive. The inaugural committee comprised Dr. Richard Hu, S. Danabalan, Peter Xia, and Lim Seong-Guan, then Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Finance, MOF, and Head of the Civil Service. Li Xianlong, LHL, agreed to chair the investment committee to kick it off, but proposed that Dr. Tony Tan should assume the chairmanship in due course. Later, the committee inducted Charles Ellis and Robert Litterman as members. Ellis was a recognised name in investment circles and was then chairing the Yale Endowment Investment Committee. Litterman was an acknowledged Wall Street expert on risk management. At its third meeting, the investment committee probed a critical issue. How much risk could GIC bear? The discussion led to a project that would have profound repercussions not only for GIC, but also for the role of reserves for Singapore. The catalyst was Lee HL's observation that there was long-standing ambiguity about the nature and purpose of the reserves managed by GIC. Essentially, the inconsistency reflected, as he called it, two opposite philosophies. On the one hand, GIC's mandate was to invest for long-term returns, the corollary of which was that short-term losses would be tolerated. This viewpoint had an implicit assumption that GIC-managed reserves would not be called on at short notice by the government. However, if these reserves were rainy day funds, then a contrary philosophy should apply. That to be available for contingencies, they should be invested in more liquid, less volatile, lower return assets. This inconsistency 
had to be resolved. MOF assembled a task force to tackle the issue. Led by Ravi Menon, then its deputy secretary, and later to be MAS managing director, the team also included GIC and MAS staff. What followed was a prodigious, painstaking effort to review Singapore's public finances. The study arrived at a seminal conclusion. The reserves managed by GIC could be viewed as more than a contingency fund. It was also a financial endowment for Singapore. This was a perspective that signified, as Prime Minister Lee H.L. put it, a transformation of the concept and role of reserves. Two notable implications followed. The first concerned GIC's policy portfolio, or asset allocation policy. MOF concluded that as GIC was managing endowment assets, its portfolio had less need for liquidity. GIC could instead allocate more to assets with greater short-term volatility but better long-term returns. It, in short, could adopt an asset allocation strategy that embodied a higher risk tolerance. MOF's conclusion would initiate a distinct change in GIC's asset allocation strategy. Up to the end of the 1990s, GIC's asset allocation was 30% cash, 40% bonds, 30% equities, a decidedly conservative posture as compared to the US endowment and pension funds. GIC would now reduce its strategic allocation to bonds and cash from about two-thirds to one-third, and correspondingly increase the allocations to public equities, real estate, private equity, and infrastructure. The endowment concept would find expression in a constitutional amendment in 2008. The amendment set the framework for how investment returns could be tapped to supplement the government's fiscal spending. The underlying intent was for a spending rule viable and fair to both present and future generations of Singaporeans. Under the amendment, the government could use up to 50% of the expected long-term real rate of return of the net assets managed by GIC and MES. It was a significant change from the net investment income framework under which the government could only spend from actual investment income comprising dividends and interest. The new Net Investment Return, NIR, framework, implemented in 2009, in contrast, allows the government to spend based on expected long-term returns, including both realised and unrealised capital gains. Tomasek was later included in the NIR framework in 2016. The decisions described in this section are among the most momentous for reserve management. The conclusion that the reserves were also endowment assets was path-breaking. Lee Kuan Yew's comment that GIC's funds could be called on to aid a seriously troubled Singapore economy rings true now, as it did then. At the same time, GIC's good performance is critical if Singapore is to benefit from the endowment which the reserves represent. In short, GIC's more than a rainy day fund manager it is one that provides regular income to Singapore for the country to grow well.